Father, we thank you for how we can meet with Jesus in your word. We pray that that would happen this morning as we see this account of what he said and did as he interacted with those around him. Pray that we would see who Jesus is and what it means to follow him in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, I'm going to show you a video on the screen. Now, this is a, a test, an attention test. So you have to really concentrate, look at what it's asking you to do, and uh, we'll see how you get on at the end. It's just a short video. This is a test of selective attention. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. So, if you haven't seen that before, did you see the gorilla? One or two? Well, it turns out if you concentrate really hard on the rules, you can miss what is actually going on. That's the point of that video, isn't it? If you're really focusing on how many players are, are, are passing because you want to get that answer right, you miss this extraordinary thing that then is obvious when you watch it back later. Well, that the Pharisees spotted Jesus and his disciples in the grain fields on the, on the Sabbath, and they watched as his hungry disciples picked some heads of grain and ate them. It's against the rules, they said. They're doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. The Jewish laws uh, concerning what is lawful on the Sabbath were complicated. They went far beyond what the law of Moses actually said. There were and still are 39 categories of things forbidden on the Sabbath, ranging from carrying and writing and washing to selecting and sifting and smoothing. And today you can find Shabbat lifts that stop at every floor in a building so that you don't have to do the work of pressing buttons on, a, on the Sabbath. And actually at Henley's Corner, you know, near Golders Green on the North Circular, a few years ago they installed the first Shabbat pedestrian crossing, which requires no button pushing and cycles between red and green on the Sabbath. And if you doubt that rule-keeping is relevant any longer in the 21st century, well, just read the newspapers. Note the rule of six that we're all getting used to. Uh, the, the, all the stuff around f uh, face coverings. The questions of whether Dominic Cummings broke his own rules about lockdown a few weeks ago, and so on. You, you would think that the instinctive rule-keeper would have no issue with Jesus, and Jesus would have no issue... With them, you would think, you know, the class SWAT, the firstborn child, the policeman, the religious do-gooder, surely that type of person is in Jesus' good books. And many people think that's what Christianity amounts to, some, some, some rules to keep. But it's the opposite. And it turns out, if you focus only on the rules, like with the gorilla, you can miss what is really going on. And that's what happens here as the Pharisees try to pick a fight with Jesus over his attitude to the Sabbath. See, this is about Jesus on the one hand and man-made religious rule-keeping on the other hand. They're not in the same category. They are two completely different things. And in these verses, there are some diagnostic questions that help us to see the difference between keeping rules 
and following Jesus. One leads to life, to knowing God. The other leads to death and destruction. Well, here's the first question that we can see in these verses that highlights the difference between keeping rules and following Jesus. The question is, who's the boss? This conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is really about authority. It's about who's in charge. The Pharisees are the religious elite, the, the establishment. And they're feeling the threat of this new guy who, with his teaching and his healings and his following among the crowds. So did you? So they're like the, um, the, the the now forgotten social media platform MySpace. Do you remember that? You heard of that? In, in both uh, 2004 and 2005, they tried but failed to buy Facebook before it got too huge. See, the Pharisees are keen to stay in control of the religion market rather than let this new guy get too much market share of his own. Did you see they're watching and they're thinking, how can we manoeuvre to kind of control him and make sure we're still in charge? But the problem is, Jesus really is the boss. And that's why, in the end, they have such a problem with him. Matthew shows us three brief claims that Jesus makes to prove this in, in verses 3 to 8. So you can see verses 3 and 4, he's the king. Now, that's the implication of the little story about David that we heard in the first reading and that uh, Jesus then refers to here. It's, a, it's an account about law-breaking in general rather than Sabbath-breaking in particular. <clears throat> but if you heard in, in that reading, Ahimelech the priest allows David to eat the ceremonial bread that only priests were supposed to eat. Well, why does he do that? Because he recognises who David is. Now, at that point, he's not yet King David, um, and it, it, in, even in the reading, it, sp it spoke of King Saul, who is still the king at that point, but David is the anointed king. He's the king in waiting, trusting God and waiting for his time to come to be enthroned. So the king in waiting, anointed but not yet enthroned, takes he gets to take priority over the law. Ahimelech recognized that, and Jesus is saying the same. Do you see? I am the king in waiting. What, what a claim to make. I'm not subject to the Sabbath laws and these traditions that you have put around the law. These 39 different categories of things you can and can't do. That, you won't find that in the Old Testament. But the rabbis had uh, added to all these things to uh, create these extra uh, things that you could and couldn't do. But no, I get to say, what you can and can't do. I am God's king who makes the law. So he, he's the king. Then, then in verse 5 and 6, he's, he's greater than the temple. Now, we don't have time to see the details, but he's saying the priests in the temple worked on the Sabbath. Well, of course they did, you know, not completely unlike vicars working on Sundays. We do work other days as well. But Jesus says, I've come to fulfill all that the temple was about. What was the temple about? Well, it was about the presence of God, pardon for God's people, the proclamation of God's law. You, you need to understand, Jesus is saying, one greater than the temple is now here. Come to me for these things. And if that's the case, how much more ridiculous is it to challenge me about the Sabbath, he's saying. 
when even the, the priests in the temple, the, the temple that's inferior to me, well, they work on the Sabbath without being lawbreakers. So he's the king in waiting. He's the fulfillment of what the temple stood for. And then verse 8, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you remember the end of last week's uh, reading? Those words we've got on the wall up here. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, Sabbath means rest. And Jesus says, I will give it. On the seventh day of creation, God rested. Sabbath was always pointing to that, to make God's people long for that. And now Jesus comes and he says, well, forget the details of what you can and can't do in order to remember what God promised in the first place, of that promise of rest. And the Sabbath keeping was pointing God's people back to what had been promised. Now he's saying, what God promised is actually here. It's me, he's saying. Come to me and I will give it to you. So can you see, therefore, these arguments about Sabbath and about who gets to say how the law of the Sabbath is kept, they're really arguments about authority. They're really arguments about who is in charge. Now, the reason that we're often attracted to law-keeping is it allows us to tick the box to say, Look, I've done what's required. Here's my certificate that proves it. So I can keep my pride and I can remain in charge. But if we're going to give up that attitude to making ourselves right with God, to to law keeping, and if we're going to start following Jesus, well, we have to acknowledge that that means he's in charge and I'm not. That's what the Pharisees couldn't bring themselves to do, so they start to plot. And it's precisely Jesus' claims to be king and greater than the temple that are the charges they eventually bring against him later in the gospel that lead to his death. Now, what all this means for us today is that our relationship to law and the law of Moses as Christians is therefore not completely straightforward. In fact, our relationship to law in general is not completely straightforward. What what do we do as Christians with all these new laws that are being placed upon us in the time of pandemic? Well, the the Bible would have us acknowledge this is about authority. But that, that doesn't mean that we don't submit to it. Well, we saw in 1 Peter, didn't we? We submit to the ruling authorities. But equally, we need to realize and remember, keeping those laws can't make us right with God. That isn't why we keep them. That is not the essence of genuine Christian obedience and the Christian life. It's about trusting in Jesus. So that means we can afford to be gentle with each other when we disagree on precisely how to implement these things because what we do all agree is Jesus is Lord. Do you see? What about the Sabbath itself? It's another thing Christians have sometimes disagreed on if you can get your head around moving the sabbath from saturday to sunday because jesus rested his from his work on sunday the first day of the week god rested from his work of creation on the on saturday that was the seventh day but now the first day of the week jesus rises from the dead he rests from his work of salvation and so historically many christians have seen sunday as the christian sabbath But the key to 
to, to, to that surely has to be resting in Jesus and coming to him for rest because that's what it points to rather than being obsessed with what exactly we can and can't do on that day. The principle of a day of rest remains an extremely wise principle for God's people because we will always tend, won't we, towards proving ourselves through our work and our deeds. So it's good. It's good to have a day when we have to stop and say, look, I'm not in charge. Jesus is in charge. It might be Sunday, it might be another day, but that's because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one in whom we find rest now. So that's the first question that diagnoses the difference between following Jesus and keeping rules to be right with God. Who's in charge? Then secondly, how are others treated? Verses 9 to 14, how are others treated? The thing about using man-made religion to promote ourselves, to exalt ourselves and make us look good is that the automatic result of that is a tendency to want to put others down to make us look better. So if you can put up the next next picture. There's a a story about uh, two friends hiking in the woods and they come across a bear. Now this clearly isn't Hampstead Heath. It's not even the UK, is it? Nothing unsafe ever happens in the UK. Well, maybe not, but... There they are in the woods, and they're face to face with this bear. And uh, there are various options, and I'm sure you've got your best idea about what to do when faced with a bear. But these guys turn and run, and they're wearing heavy walking boots, and it's hard to run. And so one of them stops. And he opens his rucksack and he pulls out a pair of running shoes and he starts unlacing his boots. And his friend kind of turns to him and gasps at him and says, what on earth are you doing? You don't think you can outrun a bear, do you? And he says, no, of course not. But I don't need to outrun the bear. I only need to outrun you. See, this is so often the attitude, if we go back to the other slide, that comes with working our way up to God with rule keeping do you see why because we say well of course i'm never going to do it perfectly but i could do it better than you i can do it better than that than my neighbor do it better than her and so i'll focus on that do you see i'll focus on making sure that relative to other people i am better so i'll push myself up and i'll push you down Now, children do this all the time. I think adults do as well, actually, if we're honest. You know, your room is untidy. Yes, but it's tidier than my brother's, and so on. We all so easily have that kind of attitude, don't we? And that's what we see happening here in verses 9 to 14. Here is this man with a shriveled hand. Now, if you lose the use of your hand, even temporarily, it makes life horrible, doesn't it? It's really difficult. But here come the Pharisees. They're looking for a way to bring charges against Jesus as a lawbreaker, forgetting all he's just said to them. Uh, You know, they're saying, you've been getting a reputation as a healer. Notice they're not challenging the idea that you might actually be doing these healings. That's not the question. But they are ignoring the implications for what the fact that he is doing 
these extraordinary healings show about who he is. So they're focused on, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So Jesus says, well, look, if you have a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you're going to pull it out, aren't you? You're not going to leave it there. And the implicit here is the pretty obvious point. If animals matter, people matter even more. So here is this man. I can heal him, says Jesus, and, and he does. So what's he saying? That Well, the Sabbath is a good day of rest and it's a good commandment in itself. It's not an end in itself. Even more important is the command to do good, to love your neighbour. You can see this back in verse 7. What does Jesus say then? If you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And they're, they're effectively doing the same here. You see, that, that's a quote from Hosea in the Old Testament where God says... Yes, sacrifices and law-keeping are important, but even more so is mercy. And when you make law-keeping and proving that you're good enough, the goal, you make that the end in itself, the way by which you are right with God, the result is, instead of loving your neighbour, you are in effect competing with your neighbour to show you're better than them and that you deserve God's favour. The thing is, even when we take God out of this in the modern world, this is still the dynamic that we see all around us. And actually it's worse. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was no friend of Christianity, but in the, in the late 19th century, as Western culture started to abandon God, and, and he famously wrote, God is dead, what he also saw that was that without God we would just be left with the old Christian concepts of sin and guilt, but no way out of them. No mercy, no forgiveness, because without God, who can forgive us when we mess up and we break the rules? So if you go show the picture, um, Professor Tim Hunt won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in uh, 2001 for his work on how cells divide. It's a pretty prestigious award. Not many people get to win that. What is Professor Tim Hunt mainly known for now? <clears throat> well, in 2015, he made a stupid, sexist joke at a conference. Now, it wasn't funny. Academics in his position shouldn't be making jokes like that. But the point is, that one moment ruined his entire career. No amount of apology or repentance would ever make up for it. And do you know what? He's moved to Japan, where he's now, uh, you know, people that haven't heard of him so much, and he's seeking to, to work there. See, that is the air that we breathe, isn't it? If you apply for a job, well, you better check your tweets, your Instagram history for anything that maybe, just out of context, could make you look like one, a breaker of one of the latest rules of the moment. Because there's no way back once suspicion gets out that you are a rule breaker. Do you see, actually, this is modern Pharisaism all around us in our culture and indeed, if we're honest, in our own hearts. Keep the rules of the culture and you're in, break them, and, well, you go to hell on earth forever. 
no mercy. So can you see why what Jesus says and does here matters in 2020? He's the king. He gets to say how the law works and how we live, and yet he's full of mercy. As he heals this man, even on the Sabbath, if, if sinners cannot be forgiven, what hope is there for any of us? And yet, we can. We can be forgiven because Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Weary and burdened by man-made rules of how to be in with God or how to be accepted in the world around you, whether that's in the first century or the 21st century. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And then finally, there's a third question that exposes everything that's wrong with rule-keeping in verses 15 to 21. And it's this. How do you get people to listen? How do you get people to listen? Can you imagine a PR company brought in to advise Jesus on his campaign? You know, we love what you're doing, Jesus. You know, you have the opportunity here to build a truly unique brand. You know, keep, get, keep getting out there, keep doing what you're doing with your healings and your teaching, and do you know what? You, you're going to transform the world, Jesus. You really are. You could be sitting on Herod's throne next. You know, you're just a carpenter from Nazareth, but the future's bright for you. You could even help us get rid of the Romans. I mean, imagine that. And Jesus, in response to that sort of attitude, says, in effect, cut the publicity budget. I'm heading away from the public eye. I'm going to do what I'm doing on the quiet, where no one who matters will know that I'm doing it. I want no tweets, no Instagram photos that tell the world what I'm doing. Keep it quiet. Well, what is that about then? Surely it makes no sense at all. Well, Matthew helps us to understand as he retreats, as you can see in verse 15 and 16, he, he helps us to understand by giving us this quote from Isaiah. Now, back in chapter 8, he quoted chapter 53 of Isaiah to explain Jesus' healings, that his healings were pointing to his identity as the promised suffering servant who would bring an end to all sickness, sin, and death. And now he points to another so-called servant song that outlines what this servant would do in terms that are very different from many people's expectations of a conquering and victorious Messiah. So just look at verse 19 in the middle of that uh, quote um, in, in our world generally how do we how do you get your message across how do you advance your cause how do you get people to listen well you shout as loud as possible and if you cannot get them to listen you just keep shouting and so you know we've got these situations like we've, I've got a picture of here this is, this is somebody in a university giving a lecture and uh, people turn up with placards and they just stand there and they shout to the point where the lecture just cannot continue. You know, forget intelligent, sensible, rational argument and debate. Just shout louder until your opponent gives up. That's all we know how to do. Well, here is somebody who does things entirely differently. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed 
he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. What is that saying? It means that he's not going to exploit weakness, the bruised reed, the smouldering wick. He's not going to see those as, ah, I can can make something of this for my own reputation and my power. No, he will go out of his way to serve. He will go out of his way to have mercy even on those who don't deserve it, even on us. Here is the one who is gentle and humble in heart, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. See, a world of law keepers needs uh, to hear that. They needed to hear that 2,000 years ago. Our cancel culture so desperately needs to hear that as well, doesn't it? And we need to hear it too. Here is the one in whom the nations, that's us, can put our hope. Here is hope for the sinner, hope for the weak. Hope for those who don't measure up in an ever-changing world. Hope for the feckless and the foolish who say and do stupid things that they immediately regret and the world won't ever let them forget. Hope for the undeserving. Hope for us. Laws have their place. Of course they do. We need them for peace and order in a broken world and it's right to submit to the ruling authorities because they've been put in place by God. But law-keeping is never going to save us. And it's not going to save the world around us. And while the world around us tears itself apart over exactly how to keep all the latest rules and what they mean, well, here is one who says, come to me and I will give you rest for the weary and the burdened. Let's not give one another more rules. Let's not give the world around us more rules so that they and we miss what really matters. Let's give them the one who is gentle and humble, who is the king who shows mercy to the weak, who says, come to me and I will give you rest. Let me pray now. Lord Jesus, may we increase evermore in our, in our marvelling at your character. As you offer rest and you offer mercy and you offer forgiveness and you offer hope, you do that as one who is gentle and humble. And in all the, the shrillness and the shouting and the anger of the world around us and indeed sometimes of our own hearts we pray that we would come to you for rest knowing that you offer full and free forgiveness and a fresh start for sinners like us and would you then give us the boldness and the confidence And the words to say that so that we can share this good news about Jesus in a world that is, uh, seems to be running away. We thank you that we have real good news 
of a distinctively different and glorious Saviour. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.